journey through the Psalms. Tonight we have 108. Summary of the Psalms. Kendall Easley said, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. So as we study through Psalms, this is a key theme that you'll see throughout the Psalms. John Piper says, The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And as you know, Our emotions sometimes can get out of whack. Sometimes we can be led by our emotions, not just by by truth or by wisdom. And so the Psalms are a great way for us to learn to keep our emotions in check according to the Word of God. Whatever that emotion may be. Could be joy. Could be confusion. Could be fear. could Could be an array of things. And the Psalms, they speak to those things. So tonight we're in Psalm 108. The title is Victory Belongs to the Lord. Victory Belongs to the Lord. Um, In the the ESV the title says, With God we shall do valiantly. But it's according to God. So we see in your notes, Psalm 108 reminds us to trust in the Lord, not ourselves, for victory. David is the author. David has a steadfast heart of praise. His heart remains steadfast because he cultivates trust in our steadfast God. Vain is the salvation of man. You'll see this as as we read on. But with God, we shall do valiantly. That's how this psalm closes. Vain is the salvation of man, but with our God, we shall do valiantly. So, I'm going to read the psalm and then we'll come back and study it. We'll break it down. Psalm 108, chapter 1. David says, by the way, real quick, sorry, I'm bad about this. Um, I didn't know this before, but a lot of the Psalms borrow, I knew this, borrow, you know this, borrow from other Scriptures. So you'll see quotes from other passages. Psalm 108 is is, um, basically word for word broken down between two previous Psalms. Verses 1 through 5 is found in Psalm chapter 57, Verses 7 through 11, and then verses 6 through 13 is from Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12. So you can go back and read these. You can see in Psalm 57 and in Psalm 60, this is actually borrowed from, it's word for word from David's previous Psalms. So we'll look at that for historic, uh, the historical background context in a minute. So now we'll read Psalm 108, chapter 1. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to You, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to You among the nations. For Your steadfast love is great above the the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all the earth. 
that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in His holiness with exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my waist, my wash bin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Verse 10. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You, you do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. With God, we shall do valiantly. We see this psalm, you can break it up in a lot of ways. Um, the way we'll look at it tonight, we're going to look first at verses 1 through 5, and the first uh, point is, we should have steadfast hearts of praise. We should have steadfast hearts of praise. David begins by saying, My heart is steadfast, O God. How can we say that? Do you, sometimes I don't feel like my heart's very steadfast. You know what? It, it's wavering. Sometimes I can be wishy-washy. Sometimes I can be afraid. Steadfast means firm. It means committed, faithful, solid. But David says, My heart is steadfast. And then he says, I will sing and make melody with all my being. We, the second point under there, A, says we should worship with all of our being. We should worship with all of our being. Now what does that mean? I, I think back to, to King David. you remember when the ark was returning and it said that he was undignified? He was praising God so just lively. He was dancing in the streets, embarrassed his family, but he didn't care because he was worshiping God with all of his being. Now, to worship God with all of our being isn't just singing, is it? That's part of it. But when we're really worshiping, it's not just singing words, but it's singing words from our heart, right? When I was in South Asia, there was a whole lot of dancing that came along with the singing. Sometimes, worshiping God with all our being includes a little bit of celebration, a little outward celebration. One time, I was in Uganda. I'll never forget this. We were at a worship service. It was an open-air worship service, and it was on the dirt ground, and there was people dancing so much that the dust was getting stirred up. I could hardly breathe. And there was this little old lady that was hunched over like this, just going crazy. And she backhanded me, and she never missed a beat. She kept on going. <laughs> and I was like, what just happened? But they were so celebratory when they were worshiping God. But it's not just about singing. It's not just about dancing. Worshiping God with our whole being is worshiping Him with our mind. Remember what Jesus said? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and your mind, and your strength. Worshiping God is obedience. It's obeying what he says. So that's what King David is talking about. 
He says, I'm going to worship you with all of my being. It's not just merely singing, but it is singing because verse 2 says, Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. What's he saying? I'll give thanks to you, O Lord. The second point under here says that we should begin the day with praise. Verse 3, he says, I'm going to awaken the dawn with my praise. With the stringed instruments. That's what those were. Stringed instruments. He said, I'm going to wake up the dawn. I'm starting the day off right. I'm here to tell you, there have been many times, and I've already told you before, I'm, I'm not very artsy. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just reality, you know. Um, my wife has always valued music and, and, and songs. She'll usually have radio playing in the background at the home and, or in the car. And she just values worship music more than I knew to value. And I'm learning from her. But there were times when I would be just fed up when I was living overseas, just, just worn down. You know, just the, the traffic was crazy and people were driving so, not just aggressively, but like selfishly. You could just see the selfishness in their driving. I don't know if any of you ever drive on 240. I had a guy on 240 one time pass me on a motorcycle riding a wheelie. <laughs> it scared me to death. And sometimes I would just turn on one of my favorite little CDs and it was Christmas music. But it wasn't common Christmas music. It was all about the coming of Jesus. It had deep theology. And I just pray, Lord, help me to focus on you right now. And that praising Him, that pausing, that, that, that time of just worship would help me get my heart back in check. You know what I mean? So, with David, we should begin the day with praise. Verse 3 says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. So I put on here, we should praise the Lord in public. You know, sometimes there have been times when I was meeting somebody for a meeting and get there a little early and kind of walk in and you don't really want to stand out too much and kind of hide your Bible a little bit. Now the better thing to do is not necessarily run around tapping people on the head with it, but set that thing out there and let it, let it see what God does. Maybe somebody will walk by and ask you about it. We should not be ashamed of praising God, right? I'm not saying be obnoxious, but I'm saying we should be willing to praise God publicly. Something else I learned from my wife. When she was in high school, on Monday morning, she was always intentional to ask the people around her what they did over the weekend. Inevitably, it would get, the question would get back around to her and she'd have the opportunity to tell them what she learned at church. That's easy, right? But I'm so... That's, that's one of the things that I love about my wife is she's just practical and she doesn't hide her faith. She just treats it normal and lets people see what God's doing in her life. Whether they have the spiritual discernment to recognize it or not, she's just going to share it and be open with it. That's good. I like that. We can practice that. Worship God in public. D says, We should praise the Lord among the nations. Verse 3 continues. It says, I will... Give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. But then he says, I will sing praises to you among the nations. Among the nations. John Piper is famous for saying, for one of his quotes, 
Missions exist because worship doesn't. Let me unpack that just for a second. The point is, yes, we do want people to hear the gospel. We want people to be saved so that they don't go to hell. That's very much a motivation for going out and doing mission work, whether that's locally or abroad. But what Piper is saying is, our passion for God to be worshipped should be so great that it drives us to tell other people about Him because if they don't know who God is, if they don't know about Jesus, then they can't be worshipping Him and He deserves their worship. Does that make sense? So because there are people out there not worshipping God, not giving Him the glory that He deserves, we should go tell them so that they too can worship Him for who He is. Because He deserves their worship. So David said, I worship you among the nations. You know, I'm learning more and more not to take for granted that we are in a faith fellowship that helps us keep our focus on the nations. You know that? At our Global Impact Conference, one of, the, one of the missionaries was preaching and they talked about how you see evidence of God having a heart for the nations from Genesis through the Old Testament in the Psalms, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the book of Revelation. God is a God that has a heart for the nations. And I'm so thankful that we have the opportunity from this church to go to the nations. To send people to the nations. To have a Lottie Moon goal, $250,000 is massive. And that doesn't even count what we give in our budget. Every day, every Sunday when you tithe, a portion of that goes straight to the mission field as well. You know, it's over $300,000 when you add it all up. We give to get the gospel to the nations. That's huge. Don't take that for granted. That's amazing. I love that about our fellowship. You know, I'm going to keep on rambling. We might not get out early after all. I met some people, a lot of people, when I was doing some uh, orientation before going overseas, and these were good, solid folks. And they didn't have a lot of faith in, in, in the American church. And it saddened me. And people, I felt sometimes that people thought I was just gullible when I bragged on how awesome my home church was. I thought people really thought I was a little bit gullible, a little bit naive, that it couldn't really be that good. Now, heaven forbid we get our head, heads big, right? We don't want to get prideful. Anything good at Longview Point now hear me, okay? It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of the Holy Spirit. And anything that Wade led us to do, it's because God put Him here to lead us to do that. This is all about God. So we have to be careful to give Him the praise and the glory. And we need to be thankful for the, the vision and for the ability to go and worship God among the nations. There are people getting saved all over this world because of a, a little bitty old church in Hernando, Mississippi. Isn't that good? Man, that is good. That is amazing. Alright, let's move on. It says in, in D, it says, we should praise the Lord among the nations. And then it breaks it down in verse 4 and 5. We should praise the Lord among the nations 
4, Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. His steadfast love and faithfulness are immeasurable. Immeasurable. You know, that's what we, we say, right? My Aunt Betty's here. I remember when I was a little bitty kid, she would ask me how much I loved her. And I'd reach my arms out as far as I could reach, this much. I wanted to reach them just as far as I could reach. And that's what this is. Look up to the clouds. Look up to the heavens. That's without limit, right? That's how much God's faithfulness is. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness has no end. God is always faithful. He never goes back on His Word. He is always trustworthy. And even, even when we're in a difficult time, even when we're struggling, even when we are depressed, even when we don't know what is coming next, God is faithful. And He is steadfast. He will not be moved. And we can take that to the bank. Right? So, we have to be careful to guide our emotions according to the truth of God's Word. Because, remember I told you Psalm 108 is a compilation from verses that were borrowed from Psalm 57? You know where David was when he wrote Psalm 57? He was hiding in a cave, running from Saul. And he wrote these words. He wrote, My heart will be steadfast. And I will awaken the dawn by praising God's name. Not because of the circumstances around him, but because of the steadfast God that loved him. So God's love, His faithfulness, is immeasurable. The next point, we should desire for the Lord's glory to fill the earth. Look at verse 5. We should desire for the Lord's glory to fill the earth. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all of the earth. And you know, this is going to happen, right? In Habakkuk, it says that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, you just can't get any more saturated than that. Right? That is going to happen. Now, today, people don't recognize God's glory all over the earth. But we know that they will. They will. There's a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, everyone will be accountable. But on that day, everyone... Now listen, whether they had the chance to repent and trust Christ and whether they had their sins forgiven and they bowed their knee to Christ before that day and they are saved and they are welcomed into heaven for eternity they will praise the Lord, or whether they did not bow their knee to Christ, and whether they are cast into hell, they still will see the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But it should be our desire for the Lord's glory to fill the earth now. Remember we talked about it a little bit on Sunday. In the Lord's prayer, Jesus said, Thy will be done. Your earth... I'm sorry on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. We want to see God's kingdom come as more and more people come to Christ, more and more people bow their knee to Christ. He is worshipped and glorified by those people and His kingdom comes. It spreads. 
and His glory fills the earth. Alright, point number two is going to be verses 6 through 12. We should maintain dependence on the Lord's steadfastness. We should maintain dependence on the Lord's steadfastness. Verse 6 says that your beloved ones may be delivered. So he was saying, let your glory be all over the earth, but he continues in verse 6, that your beloved ones, speaking of Israel, may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in His holiness. And then he begins to explain this promise, but I'm going to slow down. It says that right here, Salvation is from the Lord. In verse 6, salvation is from the Lord. It says, Let your glory be over the earth, verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Now, right hand was a symbolic of God's power, His ability, His strong arm. And the dependence wasn't on chariots. Remember, you've heard the psalm, some boast in chariots, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. This psalm ends by saying, the salvation of man is vanity. We want God's salvation, right? Real salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. All over the world, all over the world, people are trying to save themselves. Even here in the Bible Belt, even inside the church, people are trying to be good enough to earn God's favor and save themselves. I heard somebody say this one time and it really resonated. Nobody in here can deny that all people are sinners. None of us can deny that we have thought thoughts, said words, had attitudes or actions that were dishonoring to God. All of us have been there and done that. And if we were to quit sinning today and never sin again for the rest of our life, we still have sin in our past that must be dealt with. None of us can save ourselves. We cannot overcome the bad things we've done. We can't outweigh that by doing good stuff. That's not how it works. All of us have gone astray. All of us need God's salvation. Now I'm getting over into the fast forward into the gospel message real quick, but all of us need God's salvation. We cannot save ourselves. I'm going to unpack that more in a minute. The next point says, we can trust the promises of God. Verses 7 and 9 begin to walk through. Verse 7 says that God has promised in His holiness, or there's a note that says that that could be translated in His sanctuary. This is something that God had promised. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem, the portion out of the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. I believe that by the time that this was written, these things had taken place. And it's possible that David or whoever was borrowing David's words, if that were the case, may have been dealing with Edom again. But 
God had already given the promised land. When you look at Shechem and Succoth, they represent the eastern and western sides of the Jordan River, Gilead and Manasseh, the eastern side of the Jordan occupied by Israel under Joshua, Ephraim and Judah, the most powerful uh, prominent sorry, tribes to the west. This is an example that God had already granted the promised land when He said that He would. God, the Lord, is... Uh, we can trust God, sorry, the promises of God. Hebrews 11.1 1. Can you imagine David writing this in the middle of battle? Can you imagine him writing these kind of words? Now we're in the part now that was in actually in Psalm 60 and he's in another battle. Can you imagine being in a cave? <laughs> being pursued? And still having a steadfast heart like this? Being in battle? Maybe even outnumbered in a very harsh environment. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is when we're confident in what's not seen. But there's a day, brothers and sisters, when our faith will become sight. There's a day when our faith will become sight. Our faith, our confidence is not just wishful thinking. It's not just a positive attitude, right? These days, everybody wants to have a positive attitude and think positive thoughts or send positive vibes to somebody. This is God promising in His holiness that He will do something and saying, I believe, even though I don't see it right now, I believe. This is kind of promise where you're like, you know what? The whole army is afraid of that big giant. But I'm going to go with a sling and a couple of pebbles and take him on as a child. That kind of faith. The kind of faith that says, I haven't seen it with my eyes, but I believe that Jesus did not just die and was not just buried, but He rose from the grave. I didn't see it with my eyes, but I believe with every fiber in me that I'm going to see the risen Christ one day. By the way, I have experienced His power. That just strengthens my faith. And I still doubt sometimes. Sometimes I can't say with honesty that I have a steadfast heart. I don't know why that is. After seeing the power of God in my life and all around me. You've seen the power of God all around you. But these kind of promises and this kind of trustworthiness, this kind of God, honest, steadfast, able, powerful God should embolden us to be His willing witnesses, right? Because we know, we don't see it right now. Habakkuk, I think it's 2.14. Waters cover the sea, but we know it's going to happen. We don't see Revelation 7.9 happening yet. But it's going to. There will be a day. There will be a day. Just as sure as I am standing here talking to you, that there will be a people worshiping Jesus before the throne, clothed in white robes, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. It's going to happen. It's not happening yet, but it will. 
we can take it to the bank. Because God promised it. It's in His Word. And He cannot lie. There'll be a day when we weren't foolish for believing Matthew 28 when Jesus told His disciples to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them and to teach them all that he, to obey all that He had commanded. It's not foolish to do that. Some people may think it is. That's fine. We stand on God's promises whether they make sense or not. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We can believe that. We can take it to the bank because it's in God's Word, whether we see it or not. We'll keep going. We see also that the Lord is able to do the impossible. You see, impossibles in quotations. The Lord is able to do the impossible. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 19.26, what's impossible for man is possible for God. Right? It's not impossible for God. Because He can do what we would call impossible. And verse 10 says, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? I read a lot of different commentaries trying to get a little bit of historical background on this because I'm not a historian and I have a really bad memory. So I've, <laughs> I've forgotten most of what I've already learned about this stuff. So I've been just reading and reading and trying to get a good grasp on it, looking at all kinds of stuff. And I kept seeing this one thing that Edom, if they're talking about the fortified city and they're saying, who's going to get me there? How's it going to happen? They're saying that he had to be talking about Petra. You heard of Petra? I'd love to go there. Jason Ford said he's been. It was a city of Edom. It was in the middle of the limestone mountains and there was this narrow entryway. Some of the places so narrow, you could touch both walls. And they had a water source that was there. It was like 2,000 foot cliffs. So a handful of faithful soldiers could keep a whole army off because they could only try to come a few at a time anyway. And it was a really long path that led you to where the city was. And when you look at it, you've seen it. It's the place where Indiana Jones was, was uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies was, where it's like, looks like these almost like Roman palaces or something carved into the sides of the mountains, and it was marketplaces. I mean, can, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to walk around that market area. There's temples and there's tombs and there's apartments and it's just an amazing place. But it was virtually impenetrable. You couldn't get in there without the help of God. It was impossible. But what's impossible, quote, impossible for man is not impossible for God. 11 and 12, the statement here is, we are hopeless without the Lord. Verses 11 and 12, we are hopeless without the Lord. Psalmist says, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe for salvation, the sal uh, for vain is the salvation of man. He's saying, God, if you don't go out with us, if you don't help our army, we cannot do this. It is not possible for us to do this. Salvation is vain apart from God. Oh, grant us help against the enemy, the foe, because vain is the salvation of man. We are 
hopeless without the Lord. One of our former colleagues was reaching out to Nepal. He didn't even have access into Nepal. He would drive to the border and pray, God, please give us access. Please give us access. Please open the hearts of the Nepali people. He couldn't even go in the country. He continued praying and God granted access and continued to do ministry, but just hard-hearted people. They were suffering a lot of things going on politically and economically. And they continued seeking to minister. They continued pleading with God to soften the hearts. Well, this didn't just happen in Nepal, but Nepali people all over the world began responding to the Gospel like crazy. Massive numbers of people coming to Christ. Massive numbers of Nepalis being willing to go and preach the Gospel to their countrymen themselves. Even people, Nepali people in Memphis getting saved. And someone asked this guy, what was your strategy? How did you do this? And he said, well, I could tell you about my strategy. Act like I've got it all figured out. What I'm going to tell you is, I've been doing the same thing that I was always doing, but God saw fit to breathe His breath of revival across the Nepali people and soften their hearts and make them responsive to the Gospel. Our only hope is if God moves, right? The Great Commission is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws. Our dependence must be on God. What I'm saying is, Longview Point, it doesn't really matter what we bring to the table if God doesn't move, Right? We are dependent on Him to reach our neighbors. We are dependent on Him for our children to be saved. We are dependent on Him for our family members to understand and respond to the Gospel. It is all about Him giving the power. We are hopeless without the Lord. And we must not ever... Somebody told me this, man, and it stepped all over my toes. One of the biggest indicators... Of not, of, of not depending on the Lord is a lack of prayer. You know it? I don't need to pray because I got it all figured out. Now you know, in His goodness, we studied this a few psalms ago. Seems like that's when God sends a crisis my way to, remember, to remind me I don't have it all figured out and I desperately need Him. So here's my encouragement to you, Longview Point. This is a time for us to fall on our face before God and seek Him for direction. We are in a time where we get to call out to Him and trust Him and pray for His will to be done and to desire unity for, to, for knowledge to know what His will is as a body of Christ, to fast and to pray and to seek the Lord like we've never sought Him before, to trust the Lord, perhaps like we've never trusted Him before. Another level of dependence. Because prayerlessness is a huge indicator of a lack of dependence on the Lord. Point number three. We should have an expectation 
for victory. That's where it gets good. Verse 13 says, The victory belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to the Lord. We should have an expectation for victory. Because we've already been told that the victory has been won. Right? I mean, the greatest battle ever won is Jesus conquering sin and death and proving it by raising from the grave. We have a hope that endures. We have confidence. And we should have expectation for victory in the Christian life. And also, according to this verse, we should ask for it. If we believe that God is the one who gives the victory, we should ask for the victory. We should pray for our neighbors. We should pray for wisdom and guidance. We should pray against the temptations that come our way. We should be seeking God for deliverance. Look, I love it. I've told you this before. I remember Adrian Rogers talking about the process of salvation. And he talked about the moment that we were saved. He, he, God saved us from the penalty, the punishment of sin. And as He sanctifies us, that's a process of salvation as well. He's saving us from the power of sin. And we have victory. We have victory available. The same Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the grave is alive and well and able to give us victory over temptation. We need to ask for that victory. We need to claim that victory. We need to live like that's true. We don't come to God need well, we do come needy, but we don't come defeated. He's already won the victory. But there's a day. We're going to be saved from the presence of sin. And I long for that. The victory is there. The victory is there. This isn't name it or claim it. This is God's word saying the victory's won. The victory belongs to the Lord. So we should ask for it. Now, main point. The reason David had confidence is because he was confident in the Lord to win the battle. Just as David attempted great things for God, so should we. William Carey is called the father of missions. He said that we should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Don't serve the Lord based on your confidence in yourself or other men, but on your confidence in the Lord. The victory is His. So, application for today. Because, face it, you and I aren't hiding in a cave. Probably aren't going to ever fight a Moabite. But, we are in a battle. You and I are in a battle. If David was dependent on the Lord for a physical battle, we should be that much more dependent on Him for the spiritual battle that we are in. The spiritual battle. Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, talks about putting on the armor of God. And it says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the rulers and the kingdoms and the principalities of darkness, Satan and his demons. That's the battle. And therefore, we need to put on the spiritual armor of God helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. We need to gird our loins with the preparation of the gospel. Sorry, that's not it. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. We need to be suited up in spiritual, spiritual battle, uh, for spiritual battle. Because there are 
fiery darts that are thrown at us by the evil one. Those tempting thoughts of whatever it may be. Maybe thoughts of envy. Maybe thoughts of anger. Thoughts of lust. Thoughts of idolatry. Whatever it is. Jealousy. We need to trust the Lord. And the way that we put on our spiritual armor is by faith. Seeking the Lord. Armor of God's. Because the battle is not against flesh and blood. All of us are in a battle right now to be holy. Right? There's this war being waged. Remember Paul said there's this war being waged within me. So that the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Man, sounds horrible. He says, wretched man that I am, what can I do? And he says, glory be to God. Praise be to God. Because God is the one who has given us victory. The spiritual battle that we're in can only be won by the power of God. We're in a battle to raise families for Christ in this world around us. I'm in a battle as a husband and a father. We're in a battle to raise families for Christ in a world that is battling against us. Temptations like never before at a fingertip leading all kind of people, not just teenagers, grown men astray. I'm going to be bold tonight. I say this with, with love, with concern. Because of this battleness for holiness and because Satan wants to get us off track, you know that he can't take our salvation, but he can rob our testimony. I had no idea how neat and naive I am when it comes to how many people around us are struggling with pornography. I had no idea. It, it, it blows my mind. I was talking with a really good friend of mine who's a pastor who has struggled with it before, who knows many people and counsels people well according to the truth of the Word. And he said, if we... Listen to this. this, is, this is, there's no way to measure this. He said, if we were to take a poll on Sunday morning in any given church, and we asked all the people in the audience two questions. How much time did you spend in the Word this, this week? How much time did you spend looking at pornography this week? He said, I believe if we totaled up those numbers, pornography would win. Now, I can't quantify that for you. But that's scary. Because those things take our mind off of Christ and twist things up. It's, 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 it wounds us and, and warps our mind. Our battle for holiness, our battle to raise families for Christ, and our battle to expand God's kingdom. We're in a spiritual battle. And only Christ, only Christ has the victory. But don't forget, brothers and sisters, the greatest battle has already been won. Christ has already defeated sin and death and risen from the grave. So we can run to Him. I didn't put this in the notes, but remember over in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus being our great high priest who has been tempted in every way so that we can come before His throne with confidence. In time of need, we can run to Christ and He can empathize and give us the grace we need for victory in our lives. We can be holy for His glory and we can be used to spread His kingdom and His glory around the world. That's what we're here for.